0: I invite you to grab a, a Bible, if you have one, and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be studying. We're going to look specifically at verses 15 to 21. Now, in this letter, you know, it's always helpful to kind of know when we started a verse, what came right before that verse, because Paul, as he wrote this letter to these churches in this region, will often just transform from one thought to the, to the next. And what came just before verse 15 that we're going to start reading was a command that Paul made to Christians to walk as children of light and not as children of darkness is the contrast take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness that's what he said instead walk as children of light now in light of that therefore or then this is what the believer should do verse 15 starts by saying look carefully how he walks okay walk in walk in the light walk as children of light and look carefully as you, as you do it. That's what Paul is going to explain now in this passage, all right? So if you're able, let me invite you to stand. If you're not able, then that's fine. You remain seated. But those who are able, we can stand out of respect for God's word. I'm going to read verses 15 to 21. And then I'm going to make the statement that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. A couple weeks ago, we hosted Keith and Kristen Getty here at Calvary, and it was a wonderful opportunity to hear their music. Back in 2017, Keith Getty um, was interviewed by J.W. Pepper, a, a music publisher. And they were doing a little segment that they put on their YouTube channel about different composers and artists, and he was interviewed, and he made a fascinating fascinating statement in this interview. He said, quote, We live in the most exciting generation, I think, to be Christians or to be part of the church. I wouldn't have wanted to be born in any previous generation. That's what he said. And I find that fascinating because that is not the common way or the common view that I hear Christians talking when I interact with people in the world today, right? To say that this is the most exciting time to be a Christian. To to absolutely proclaim, I would not have wanted to be born in any other generation, right? That point of view is not the one that I most commonly encounter. Most commonly, I encounter people that have a sense of discouragement, a sense of deflation or disillusionment about the age in which they live, A desire maybe to have, born in, to, be, to have been born in some other generation. And it differs slightly depending on your perspective. You can pick your favorite uh, generation. Ma- a lot of mainstream American evangelicals, particularly white ones, I would add. Like the, like the late 1950s, early 1960s. They go back to that time. And they say, that, well, that was the time I would have wanted to have lived in that generation. Or you know, if you're a good liturgical Presbyterian, you might want to go back to the 1600s, the days of the Protestant Reformation, the glory days. That's when preaching and worship and and every, it, like it hit its zenith. That's where it was. That's where the time was, right? Or if you come, I mean, those who, who are Roman Catholics want to go. They want to go farther back. I want to when there was one church, one universal church. I want to go. I want to go back to that time. But the world today, the world today. What Christian wants to be born in this generation? Most Christians I talk to would not have understood a statement like that to have been something that would generate excitement. What did Keith Getty mean when he said that? Well, when he was here a week and a half ago, I asked him. I said, what did you mean? And he remembered the interview, and part of his response was exactly what he said in the interview. He said, in the interview, he said, there are more Christians in the world today than there are in any previous generation. Their Bible is in more languages today than it has ever been. Christianity is in more countries than it has ever been, right? What he was saying was, and he reiterated this when we talked, he said the evangelical Christianity may not be growing in the West. That's where we're kind of most myopically focused when we live in the West. may not be growing in in this part of this continent, but in the majority of continents in the world, by the way, where the majority of people live in the world, Christianity is growing, and in some cases it's growing rapidly. So part of his reasoning was an optimism about the global church, Right? And that's helpful to hear, particularly for the average American Christian who tends to think that if something isn't happening in America, yeah, it's probably not happening. But the other thing that he told me was less, less pragmatic, less kind of situational like that, and more grandly theological. It was fascinating. He said, he said the other thing, he said, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, and in his historical providence and working throughout history, and you believe that he has planned the times and the places where each of us are to live, then it is, it must be, objectively true that this moment in this place is the perfect and most exciting time for you to be alive. The purpose, the perfect and the most exciting time for me to be here. And so even if it's hard... If this is God's time for us, and God does, and He always does what is best, then there is no other time, there could not possibly be another time that would be better for me to live than this time. Because this time is God's time for me. And that, I believe, is a large part of what Paul is driving at here in these verses we just read. And why he's so concerned with the way the Christians in Ephesus are living why he's so concerned about their walk because this is their time and they have the opportunity to live God's exciting moment in such a way that is a witness to the community in which they live an opportunity that they dare not waste follow through the text with me under the four headings that are listed in the in the bulletin I printed in there I want to talk about the times in which we live that's the first point and that's verses 15 and 16 And then the opportunity that provides, that that is provided by the time in which we live. The opportunity that's provided and how we figure that out, verse 17. And then the source of the power for us to be able to do that, verse 18. And finally, the witness that results, that comes from walking with Jesus and what that looks like. There's three things that are listed in verses 19, 20, and 21. Got that? The times, the opportunity, the source, and the witness. Now, let's talk about the times first. It's a lot to cover, I know, but let's talk about the times. Read verses 15 and 16 with me again. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Okay, what's he saying here? Paul wants us to watch carefully how we walk, how we live, making the best use of the time. Now, this, this phrase here is often, often cited by the productivity um, time management gurus, particularly those who kind of ha- want to have a Christian spin to it, right? The Christian productivity gurus. They'll go to a verse like this and say, see, we are to redeem the time. And not all of you like that kind of stuff, you know, time management kind of tricks and things like that, but, but, but you know, I, I kind of do, right? I mean, I I used to have one of those, you know, those daily planners, the one with the clasp, the onion and the three rings and clip clip and you turn to it and you write all your stuff down and you cross stuff out. Now, today's age or whatever and with the schedules of five children as well of my own and we've got, you know, synced Google calendars that, you know, my wife and I, we can pull up on our device wherever we are and I make a change and it changes there. And she makes a change and it changes and we're all able to be in sync. I like that kind of stuff. But that's not really what I was talking about. Right? We should be wise stewards of our time. Right? Don't get me wrong but that's not really the use of the word time here. Paul's not so much giving us a command to organize your day planner or sync up your Google Calendar. He's giving us a command to take advantage of this critical moment. The Greek word that's translated time here is kairos, and it refers specifically to a, it refers to a moment that is significant, a moment of significance. There was a there was a song from the Broadway musical. It didn't go too far on Broadway, but it kind of made its rounds as a soundtrack for a while from, uh, called Jekyll and Hyde. You know, Many of you know the story of Jekyll and Hyde, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And, and, and there's a song from the musical version called This is the Moment. It's right when Dr. Jekyll is about to try his experiment. And he feels as if all of life have been leading up to this time, to this instant, to this moment. This is the moment, he says. This is the time. When the momentum and the moment are in rhyme, right? The momentum, everything comes into rhyme and begins to to sink, to intersect in a place and in a time that is particularly significant. That's the sense in which Paul is using the word here. He's saying to make the best use of the time, or to put it more precisely, to redeem it, to recover it, to repurpose it, and then to use it. Now, note that his encouragement to make use of the time to redeem it, to view this moment as God's perfect moment for you, that, that, that his use of that phrase, that isn't with a blind eye to the reality of evil and the reality of sin and the reality of struggle in the world, right? It's not, it's not to minimize the hardship that goes along with it, All right? Sometimes, sometimes uh, you know this is the time it's a common phrase actually if you if you follow professional sports have you ever seen or even college sports some of the college teams will do this too and they got a hype up video at the beginning of the season you know they make a hype up video and they show all the highlights just the good parts and they've got a bunch of people from the team saying this is our time this is our moment right this is like paul was saying this is our time but they only show the highlights they only show the good parts right this is our time Right? Paul is not unaware of the bad parts, the things that don't make the highlight real. In fact, he says, the days are evil. And by saying that, right, rather than lessening the importance of the times in which we live, it's actually raising the stakes. It's ratcheting up the importance of the moment. Right? It's an important moment for us. Here's the historical context of the, of the days in which Paul was living. The context of the churches to, that he was writing to. For the most part, up to this point, up to this, this moment, for the Christian church, at least from the perspective of the Romans, the Christians were really just a subsect of Judaism. That's kind of how most of the Romans saw it up to this point. Which allowed the Christian church to search, to search, it continues to rise in, in, in prominence. It continues to gain adherence. It spreads throughout the Roman Empire. There's a lot that's good about that. But what that also meant is that the church is now going to be on display. This is a critical moment. And it was going to come into persecution because of that. Parts of what were going to happen were going to be really hard for the church because the days were evil. But these were times, Paul is saying, these are times to be redeemed. Because in evil times, the need is even more apparent. And the gospel profile of the church was rising. And he was saying, we have a moment to take advantage of here. So, Paul's writing to these churches in Asia Minor, and he's saying to the church in Ephesus, he's saying, Look around. The need is so great. All the false gods, all the failed systems, all the consequences of living for yourself rather than living for the one true God. And he's saying to the church, What an exciting time to be alive! Because you have the gospel. You have the good news about Jesus who can redeem us and who can forgive us and who can bless us with the riches and the security of being adopted into God's family. What a message you have. This is the moment. To spread the message of this God who takes us from death to life, from despair to hope, from sorrow to joy. Perhaps that can be true of us in this time, in this moment as well, the one in which we live. There are cultural challenges, to be sure. Our days are evil, too, just like the days of Paul were, but what if at this moment, with all of its challenges, we have that same gospel to share? Because we do. What if this is the exact moment God wants us to live into? Because it is. It must be. Because God has determined it. That's the first point. These are His times. Now, second point, how do we know what the specific opportunities are? Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be foolish, which connects back to the phrase that was used in verse 16, too. Walk not as unwise, but as wise, right? So there you have the contrast. Wisdom and folly. If you're going to tell the opportunities in the time, in the moment, you've got to have wisdom. You have to understand what the will of the Lord is so that you're not... You're not foolish. Wisdom and folly, they're opposites, right? Verse 17 elaborates by stating the contrast a little bit differently. Verse 17, Paul says, Do not be foolish, but instead of simply saying be wise, you could just do that contrast, right? Do not be foolish, be wise. Clear enough. But instead, what he does is he uses a phrase that elaborates on that one word, wise, to say, This is what I mean by wise. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, what is wisdom? Wisdom is understanding and walking and living out the will of the Lord. Now, in talking about the will of the Lord here, Paul's not specifically talking about God's revealed moral will, the moral rules, his his commands. That's important. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There are things that we should and shouldn't do as Christians. Paul spells a bunch of them out. But that's not really the wisdom he's talking about in terms of understanding the opportunity to take advantage of in, in this cultural moment. He's not talking about the rules. The rules are clear enough for the Christians to know. Now, what, nor, nor on the other hand, when it says understand the will of God, are we talking about God's secret will? How he weaves all things together at all times and in all ways perfectly in the ways that our minds can't get around, those things that we can't know of why God is doing what he's doing. Every time something happens, God has millions of different purposes at that exact time. We can't know all of them and we can't pretend to. We can't wrap our mind around it. Right? That's not that's the working of his will, but that's not primarily the will that Paul's talking about here. No, understanding the understanding of God's will, the wisdom that, that Paul's talking about here, the way to discover the opportunities we have to seize the moment in which we're found, right? When we take the, it it happens when we take the things that we know, the knowledge of God's revealed moral will, and we combine it with the confidence that God is working even when we don't see it, his secret will. When we take those things and we seek God to discern what the next step is, right? That's how you get a plan, how you see the opportunities, right? You apply God's will to the circumstances of life where you don't have a clear answer, He's revealed will, and you say, okay, I know this to be true, but I don't know exactly what that means and whether I should go A or B, whether I should go in this direction or that direction. There's no command that I have in the Bible as to which direction I should go, which job I should take, right? which neighbor I should talk to first. What do I need? I need wisdom. I need to understand what God's will is. Right? You see, you need, to have, you need to have a plan. You need to have some, certain anchors, and then you need to apply God's wisdom into the situation. All right, for example... I told you I was talking on Thursday um, to an executive pastor of a PCA church in Sarasota, Florida. It was at the northern end of the hurricane's path of destruction a week and a half ago. And his church has become the staging ground, one of the staging grounds for the disaster relief teams that the PCA is, is sending. Right, and he was telling me about how they were going about their work to redeem the moment. And he clearly believes that this is a moment that God has given to the church. Right, now, how do you do that? How do you go about that? How do you sense what the opportunity... There are needs everywhere. Well, you take biblical principles and then you seek to apply them into the situation to determine what the opportunities are. Biblical principles. Our denomination believes that as Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that when someone is in desperate need, then we should, even if it's a great personal cost, that we should seek to help them if we can. Right? That's why our denomination has established a disaster recovery ministry, why they have fully stocked warehouses and trailers and, that, are, that are ready to roll, loaded with power tools and generators and gasoline and food and water and emergency shelters. Why they're prepared? Because they anchor in a biblical principle, God's revealed will. They, we also know from the revealed will of God that the Bible says that we should do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith, which is why, as a biblical principle, they always start with helping our churches. They start with helping our churches because from our churches, then, ministry can be launched into the, into the local community. When those members, when those leaders are established, then they're best able and equipped to be able to minister to others, right? But, but those are biblical principles that still don't help you when you get into the situation, try to figure out okay, what, this house or that house, this church or that church. Right? This church member's house or that, who gets the tree taken off of first? How do you figure all that out? You have to apply wisdom. Part of applying wisdom for disaster relief ministry is that you got a team that arrives. And they had a, the day after the storm swept through, there was a first team that arrived on site. Right? It was just an assessment team. They had a trailer, generators, blankets, food, water, arrived, ump, lift up the back of the truck, and assessing the situation. Two days later, over the weekend, the first team arrives on site. And this team is like, it's like, it's, it's like the special operatives team. Highly trained, independent, highly experienced workers. These guys sleep in tents if they need to. Right? You have to be trained on all the power tools. you got to be able to do stuff by yourself. You have to be able to figure out situations. You need the gift of wisdom and assessment right away. They arrive with all their own supplies and they begin to go to work. Right? That's wisdom. Send those folks in first. The larger volunteer term teams with the bunkhouses and the shower trailers and stuff. That's coming in this week. Right, but you see, there's an order to it that comes from applying the biblical principles. This is the moment. There are opportunities. Seek to understand based on what God has revealed to us and apply that into the specific situation. Right, that's the hard work of the church in every age. And it's true for us, broadly speaking, right? There's, there's no time to get into detail, but, but these are things that our church, our church, Calvary, has to think about too. What is our moment and how do we apply wisdom to discern what our opportunity is to do what God has called us to do? Now, if we're going to, if we're going to take advantage of the opportunity in the time in which we live, we need to be connected to the right power source. That's the third point. Look at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Walking well in the moment that God has given us and acting in wisdom to take advantage of the opportunity requires that you're using the best fuel to do it. Um, I listened to an interview with Tim Tebow last week. Tim Tebow, former Heisman Trophy winner. um, Committed Christian now, actually much more involved. He still does some sports commentary and stuff like that, but much more involved in, in ministry around the world, locally, right? And despite his busy, very busy schedule, he's famous for maintaining and sticking to his workout routine and his diet, no matter what he's doing. And you look at him and he's obviously, you know, he's obviously ripped and he's strong and he's, he's well-built. But what was challenging for me in listening to his reasoning when the interview asked him about, like, why do you do this? He's, he also talked about not just his physical workout routine, but his diet. He said, basically, he said, look, he said, I keep a grueling schedule with my foundation, with the associated ministry, he said, if I don't take care of my body, I I can't physically keep up. And if I don't don't eat right, I don't think clearly. And if I'm not thinking clearly, I can't take advantage of the opportunities to serve and to love people as well as I should. That's pretty convicting. Just think how much more amazing this sermon would have been if I had not written it on Friday after four and a half hours sleep a greasy omelet breakfast with buttered toast and home fries drinking coffee mixed with hot chocolate this sermon would be amazing (laughs) physical diet and exercise aside paul's making the same spiritual point here he's saying that what you're filled with it matters and so his contrast is between being drunk with wine and filled with the holy spirit okay a couple of quick controversies here um both of which require probably longer discussions, but yeah, I got to at least address them so that you know that I know they're there. First, the whole wine thing. Um, just to be clear, this is not an absolute command not to drink any beverage ever that contains alcohol, right? That wouldn't be historically accurate. It wouldn't be true to the, true to the text. Wine was a, stable, a staple drink in the Mediterranean world. They drank it all the time. It was fermented to To preserve it, there would have been an alcohol content to it. And so it's historically inaccurate to try to twist this into some sort of prohibition to consume any kind of alcohol uh, at any time. Now, that being said, the command against drunkenness is pretty clear. Calls it debauchery. It's, It's living out of control. It's like a riot in your life. That's what debauchery means. It's just craziness. And besides all the idiotic things that you can do when an intoxicating substance controls you, Besides all that, it's not fit for the moment. It will not allow you, when you put some sort of intoxicating substance into you, it will not allow you to take advantage of the time. It will not allow you the clarity of thought that is required of you if you're going to be at your best, at your clearest, for the moment that God has put you in. Uh, Third week in a row, quoting from a movie. Second week in a row, quoting from a Scott It's definitely not for everyone, but the Mel Gibson movie Braveheart, maybe some of you have seen it, about the real life William Wallace, who was the Scottish freedom fighter who led the oppressed Scots against the occupying English in the late 1200s. There's this scene at the end of the movie um, William Wallace is in prison and he's about to be executed the next day. He knows that's going to happen. And everyone knows it's going to be horrific. And the goal of the torture that will come before his death that they're going to inflict upon him is intended for him to to, to force him into a a public renunciation of everything that he believed, to recant the things that he had said about Scottish freedom, to pledge his allegiance to the English king. And for all of his heroic behavior and his heroism on the battlefield, this is Wallace's moment, his moment of witness. His final act and testimony to the truth of his belief in Scottish freedom that he had been proclaiming. But one of his friends, the princess who's in love with him, visits him in prison. That's the scene. She loves him. She begs him to recant because she doesn't want to see him suffer. She begs him to pledge allegiance to the king. And when he refuses to do that, she offers him a vial of intoxicating liquid. She says, drink this. It will numb the pain. And Wallace refuses he says, no, it will numb my wits and I must have them all. It will numb my wits and I must have them all. The Christian needs to live like that. It's tempting to numb the pain when the days are evil, but too much wine or television or social media or whatever will numb the wits. And in this moment, we cannot be without our wits. We need them all if we're going to seize the opportunity of this moment that God has given to us. But if we must not be filled with what will numb us, wine's just the placeholder for that, then what are we going to be filled with? Well, the Spirit. Which brings me to another phrase that can sometimes cause disagreement among Christians. And if you want to talk about this, plug, read Baptism in Fullness by John Stott and join us for the book conversation on November the 8th. But the essential question here is this is where the discussion comes into play does this say as sometimes people try to argue does this say that we should ask for or we should seek a a special filling of the holy spirit like a like a like a special boost like a one-time power shot after we become a christian and what i will say is this first the verb here is in a tense uh, is in a tense that does not speak of this as a one-time event but as a a regular part of life and if you go through this exercise later, turn to Colossians chapter three verses 16 to 17, you will see a parallel passage that mirrors almost exactly these verses here in Ephesians five. It almost matches clause for clause, phrase by phrase with Ephesians 5:15 to 21. I don't have time to do it, but you can, you can track the two passages side by side and you can see how they match up all the way through. And interestingly, the parallel phrase that sits alongside, be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is what it says in Ephesians 5, the parallel phrase in Colossians 3 is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the rest of everything else lines up exactly. So it's as if those two go together, which... Doesn't contradict when Paul says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you fully, fully to take advantage of this time and this moment to walk in the way that you ought to walk." All right? It doesn't contradict the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It expands on it. It explains it. It says, "This is how you. This is how it happens." All right? How are we filled with the Spirit? By reading the word of Christ and having it take up resonance in our hearts. God working together, the word being applied by the Holy Spirit. All right? Now that may not clear it all up for you, but we but we're talking about an action of God that is an ongoing part of the Christian life where our understanding of Jesus grows through the application of the Word of God to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what this is talking about. And the overall point is this. When you're looking to take advantage of the opportunities provided by this exciting moment of history that you've been given, this is the takeaway. Do not fill yourself with anything that will put you under its influence more... Than the influence of the Holy Spirit. Because in order to be a witness, you need your wits. Better yet, you need the wits of God working through your wits, and that becomes then the most powerful witness, which is the fourth point, All right? We see the witness to being filled with the Spirit. What's that look like? We see it in the last three, three verses of, of, of the passage that we read, 19, 20, and 21. When we're filled with the Spirit, what's the evidence of that? What are we doing as evidence as witness when we're filled with the Holy Spirit well verse 19 we're singing and praising God verse 20 we're thanking God verse 21 we're submitting to one another and each of these are topics that can be sermons in and of themselves but let's let's at least just look at each of them quickly right first thing what are we doing what's our first witness we're singing and praising God Verse 19, we're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, I, I do know that there is a difference of opinion, particularly in our theological tradition, about what's exactly being referred to when it says psalms and hymns and spiritual psalm, songs. There are some who, who think it's only appropriate to sing only psalms that are in the Old Testament, Argue that this refers to different categories, different types of psalms. I want to acknowledge that. Most people in our church would be in this category, right? Acknowledge the beauty and the importance of singing the, the psalms, but understand that this phrase is referring not just to Old Testament psalms, but also to contemporary songs of praise, like many scholars believe Paul is quoting in just the, the verse before what we read, in verse 14, early contemporary songs of the Christian church. But one way or the other, that debate is not the main point of verse 19. The main point is that being filled with the Spirit leads to praise and to singing and to mutual encouragement. Right? You see I want you to see the multiple dimensions of what's happening here in this praise and singing and right, because you've got it you got it going in two directions. You've got the vertical aspect of it, clearly. Worship worship is always foundationally and therefore primarily vertical, directed towards Towards God that's kind of definitional singing and making melody to the Lord it says so that's emphasized that's there but interestingly you see he says there's also a horizontal aspect to the to the praise because we are addressing one another with our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs which by the way is another biblical reason for why it's important for us to be together with one another in worship when we're able to because because your praise is not just vertical it is a horizontal witness as well. You witness to your neighbor when you sing and when you praise God. You encourage one another when you sing and make melody to the Lord. Now, second thing, that's the first thing that's a the witness, the, the praise of God. Second thing that's a witness is your thanksgiving, right? We're thanking God. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's a good verse for a Thanksgiving Eve meditation, Right? Note that there is not much room for qualification here. Paul's not giving you much of an out. When should you give thanks? Always. Right? Why should... What should you give thanks for? Some things. The good thing... Everything. Not much room for hedging. But that can be tough, right? How can you do that? There's a hint here of how you can do that. Because it says that the thanksgiving is given to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now... There's an aspect to that that is a, you know, a, a, a formal uh, formula in a sense for, for how we pray. We come to the Father through the Son by the power of the, of the Spirit, right? So there's a, there is sort of a, an aspect to that, but don't let it just stop as a formula there. As if, as if it's saying, like, make sure you tack on at the end of your prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that way it'll work, Right? It's much more than a formula that's going on here. It's a reminder that when you're having trouble finding a reason to give thanks for everything, right, remember that your prayer for thanksgiving, like everything else, is mediated by the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the work of Jesus Christ is your encouragement and your empowerment for giving thanks in all circumstances and all situations at all times. Because whatever you might not understand about a particular circumstance that you're experiencing, the discipline of thanking God in the name of the Lord Jesus will remind you of what the Lord Jesus has done for you. It reminds you of His sacrifice, reminds you that God must love you and love you a lot if He were to die for you, if He were to take the penalty for your sin so that you might have access to God. If that's true then you always, regardless of what any of your other circumstances might be, you always have a reason to thank God. And so then, our thanksgiving becomes a witness of God's great sacrifice for us. That's the second thing. Now, finally, the third witness, we're submitting to one another. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'll spend the least time here because the rest of chapter 5 and a large chunk of chapter 6 we'll actually give specific examples of what Paul means by this. And we'll, we'll spend three Sundays divi- diving into each of those examples of what this looks like, what submitting to one another looks like in marriage, in parenting, in the workplace. But the main point, and why it is connected grammatically to what's being said here in verses 15 to 21, the main point is that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, our submission to God's appointed order of authority is a witness of our submission to Him. When we submit to one another out of love in our appointed places of authority that God has given to us, it's a witness to the fact that He sits above it all. It's a witness of our submission to Him. Now, where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? What now? Where are we? It leaves us at the most exciting moment in all of human history for you and for Calvary. It could not ever be anything less than that. Because this is the moment that God has made. And as Paul said to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17, God has determined the times and the places for each and every one of us to live. And that leaves us with two very important applications and you can decide which one of them fits for you. If you're someone who is uncertain about this Father God, this Lord Jesus, this Holy Spirit that we've been talking about, uncertain about submitting your life to Him, following Him, then what Paul said in Acts 17 is the main application for you because Paul said that now God is commanding all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, He's saying to you, this is your moment because there's another moment coming. A moment of His return. A moment of glory. A moment of judgment. And so for you, this is your moment where God is commanding you to come to him, to repent of those things that intoxicate your heart rather than him, to turn them over and to be intoxicated by the Holy Spirit instead, to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if you're someone who has the assurance of faith, then the challenge is a little bit different for you. It's a challenge to make your moment count. If you're going to redeem this moment for yourself. If we're going to redeem this cultural moment as a church, we need to start when? Now. If we're going to understand what the will of God is, we need to dive into our Bibles when? Now. If we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, when do we need it? (laughs) Now. Only one life soon will be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for putting us exactly where you intend us to be. Allow us, Lord, recognizing the evil, recognizing the struggle, to rejoice in what you have done and this opportunity that you have given to us, our small small part to play, our role, our time on the stage. Lord, allow us to play the part in a way that points to you, in a way that is unmistakable as we thank you for all things in all circumstances, as we sing of your greatness and your glory to you and before a watching world, and as we submit to you in all things. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.